Yeah, that song will wake you up. I like that particular version. All right, so you probably know me as Mike. I'm not dressed normally. Forgive me. Um, we just, Trace and I just came back from Angel Tree Camp, so we just wanted to give you a little update. It was an outstanding time. We deal with the kids of those guys. Um, oops, sorry. <laughs> Gave it to me. Um, so what we do is we take these kids and we take them to a great place. They get to go horseback riding. Uh, we take them fishing. So we usually don't talk about numbers, but I have two really fun numbers this time. So one of the things we do is when we take the kids there, we actually secure a water park so we can just take our kids and have them safely in there. So we also have a giant water slide, which they insist that grandpa goes down um, many times. But we had a kid this time, I think set the world record. He went down at 31 times that afternoon. Now, and then the next day, we're out early fishing. So we get them up at 6.30 in the morning and run them till 10 at night. That's so we get sleep. So we're in fishing, sort of. Then it's just a little pond. There's some catfish and bluegill, and we just do catch and release. It's a ton of fun. They're terrified by worms, of all things. When we grew up, we ate worms. I don't know what's different with kids. So we're getting it, and so <laughs> one little guy's fishing. And sure enough, into the catfish pond he goes, right up to here. So we pull him out, and he smells like fish. It was the same kid that went down the slide. Yeah, yeah. He went down 31 times, decided he liked the water that much. He'd go into the pond. It was a little different. Not, I'm taking, I get him over. I'm taking him over the cabin, which isn't far away, cleaning off his shoes, which now smell like catfish. Um, I turn around, I see my fellow mentor bringing his little brother who decided to duplicate that particular <laughs> event. So go ahead and then share about what we do. And Yeah, just, again, uh, I just want to make sure from the bottom of our hearts that I thank you for your support. And, sorry. Now spread to her. We just left camp yesterday. So um, we're being with these kids, pouring Jesus' love into them for three days, and then they go back home. And so sometimes it's, it's a happy sad. But um, these kids are from broken homes, and your prayers all this week have been oh, amazing. Yeah. So all the effort and all the money and all the things that you do to support us, it's worth it if that one kid and that one family knows Jesus. And so I just ask you for prayer for these families um, until we meet them again um, to keep them in prayer because I think we set some seeds in the ranch and everybody that was there, all my volunteers, those seeds were planted. So we're hoping that they will continue to grow with your prayers. Thank you again. All right. Thanks. Yay. All right, so I guess now I have to explain to Randy why I call this the jewel of atonement. So most of us are familiar with atonement. Um, atonement is a word. Now, oddly enough, we get that word from a guy named William Tyndall, and about the 16th century, he's translating the Old and New Testament into English, and he gets in a lot of trouble for that. Well, he comes across the past couple of passages, one particular in 2 Corinthians 5, and we'll actually be reading from that in a while. And the, at the time the word that he chooses, atonement, is used by many people to simply mean at one meant, at one meant. And so it's the idea that the salvation of God brings harmony. It restores harmony. Now, that's a good idea, but that's more the result of what happens when God atones us. And we'll kind of wrap it up with atonement. But atonement is based on two words. One 
as Jeff knows, the Greek and Hebrew, you have kafar in the Old Testament in Hebrew, and you have hilasterion in Greek in the New. Well, those words mean more to cover or to cleanse. Um, in big theological terms, it's either expiate or propitiate. And to expiate is to kind of relieve from guilt or release from objective guilt. And propitiate is more to turn away God's anger from our sin. And that's really more the sense of what atonement, particularly as it's taught um, through the scriptures. So I'm gonna, we're going to walk through four theories of atonement. I told Randy to have lunch about 1230. Um, I'm just kidding. We're going to go briefly through four theories of atonement because I think when you understand all four of them, you'll understand why I use the metaphor of a jewel because a jewel, typically when a jeweler sees a stone, there's a table in that, and from that they build the facets that help bring out the beauty and resilience of that given stone. And I think by the time we walk through these four theories, you'll understand a little better, a little better the, just the full, complete nature of the atoning sacrifice of Jesus, which is why I picked those two songs, which followed Jeff's introduction to worship quite well. It's one of those Jesus coincidences. I love Jesus coincidences. All right, so the first theory is called recapitulation. So recapitulation is a term developed by one of the early church fathers, Irenaeus. And it's associated with the idea that Jesus is the second Adam. And the idea behind recapitulation is that as Adam was the first man in the garden, and he is disobedient, and as a result of that, he is exiled from the garden, Jesus now must become fully human and kind of get a do-over for humanity. So Jesus is going to recap, he's going to recapitulate being born of a human mother, being fully human while at the same time being fully God, in order that even as we're made in the image, when he is in the image of God, he will obey God perfectly where Adam did not. So when we think of us, and this is a lesson we use this with the kids at camp all the time, is the fact that God loves the variety of life and everyone is different, yet what holds us together is we're all fashioned in his image. And so the image of God in Adam includes what you'd call a substantive part of it. In other words, in the way that God was free to create, we are able to freely choose many things. We can be creative and thoughtful and we have certain of the attributes of God, but there's also a functional part because not only is God generous sharing his image with us so that we can be in his image so that we can exist in harmony and communicating relationship, but it also he shares his authority. When he creates the cosmos, he's king of the cosmos. <laughs> and yet, as soon as he creates Adam and Eve, he gets us and we get to share his power and authority, his kingly authority, by rightly exercising dominion over the earth. Only we don't always exercise it with the same kingly wisdom that he does. So you have a substantive part. We actually can be like God in some respects. There's a functional part because we're told to rule and reign with him. But most importantly, there's a relational component. Because I'm fashioned in the image of God, I can communicate with him. He can make himself known to me, understandable and comprehensible, which he does through the word, which I love being here at Red Door because Jeff articulates that word 
compellingly and well, and then the Spirit enlivens it in each of us. And so that's part of what we appreciate, is the relationship is based on the fact that we can, we share attributes and we can communicate and understand one another. So then we understand that here's Adam and he's in the ideal place. Because when you look at Eden, Eden is a walled paradise. That's actually what the word in, it comes from, a, not even, a, it's kind of an ancient Semitic word meaning a walled paradise. And there's food and there's water and there's beauty and there's the harmony that exists between man and woman. And we even get that little hint that God walked with them in the cool of the garden, that he actually walked with them which is a kind of a really beautiful image when you're walking side by side with someone you kind of have the same goal the same purpose you're sharing the same mind and it's a wonderful image of what he intended for us so there's the initial harmony which would then be lost and this is first and foremost why jesus has to become fully man because when we're exiled from the garden we lose a number of things one is in the middle of the garden is a tree of life. And as long as Adam and Eve could eat from that tree, they would live. The moment they're separated from that, death will ensue. That's why people often think, well, they left the garden, but they lived. Yeah, but if you go to Genesis 5, the 10 generations of Adam, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. The moment you're cut off from that tree, you lose access to life. It's kind of a way that when I lose access to God and his presence, Death is the only thing that possibly can result. It's just the logical outcome of being exiled. And so exile is a picture of death. So then, as we'll read in 1 Corinthians 15.45, Paul uses this image of Adam to help us understand why Jesus is the second Adam. Now, first, if you remember in 1 Corinthians 15 in this letter, one of the issues that the Corinthians have is whether or not Jesus has been resurrected. And he's trying to explain to them, yeah, he, if, it's, if he hasn't been raised from the dead, stay home on Sunday, watch cartoons, have some coffee, because you're in your sins. So he says at this point, thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. So where Adam, remember he's fashioned from the dust, but he's animated when God breathes into him. So the thing that breathes into us, our life, is clearly pictured as coming from God, who literally breathes into us. And that's what animates life, because it all proceeds from God as the source of that life. So he says it there. And then also later, when he's writing to the church at Rome, he's going through a really rich and wonderful argument. And he once again uses this idea that Jesus is the second Adam. And so he has this in Romans 5.12. It says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, because Adam broke the commandment, and death through sin, he gets exiled, death follows, and death spread to all men. Why? Because all sinned. Everybody sins. No one gets out of that. So, what you see then is it's absolutely necessary that Jesus come back. So recapitulation is the idea that Jesus comes as fully human to relive the story of humanity from birth, through life, through suffering, and through death so that he can show us, he can picture us that recapitulation 
First is Irenaeus sees, and later this guy Anselm in the 12th century in Europe writes a book called Cordeus Homo, in which why God became man, and it's his central idea that the fact that Jesus is fully human means he's fully experienced everything every one of us has. So that when he functions as high priest, and particularly in this case as sacrifice, he's able to be the perfect sacrifice because he's been tempted in every way that we have, yet he does it being fully obedient to God. So now think of it too as well. So when Adam's in the garden, is he in a pretty cool place? I mean, there's nothing wrong with it. It's ideal. Sin isn't present. Powers of evil don't seem to be able to have pressure, although the serpent kind of shows up, doesn't he? So in this ideal setting, Adam fails and is exiled. Now, what's interesting too as well, if you read that story, it says that when God had to drive Adam and Eve to the east, and there are cherubim, meaning there's plural angels, so there are large, powerful spiritual beings preventing our access from going back to the tree of life. And not only the powerful spiritual beings, they're described as holding a sword which goes back and forth. And if you catch the imagery, they're basically holding lightning bolts. <laughs> so powerful angelic beings with lightning bolts. Do you think you're going to get through that on your own? You're not, you are not getting back and restoring harmony to God on your own merit or by your efforts. You will be a small lump of charcoal heading back that way. So Jesus is born into poverty, into a world beset with sin and evil, has to struggle. I mean, it's not an easy existent life in the ancient world. It was fraught with difficulties, crime and brutality. I mean, we live in a really civilized, wonderful place here. I tell people oftentimes, we're rank amateurs what comes to being sinners compared to those guys. They were pros. They were very good at it. But then think, too, when Jesus rises from the dead, where is he? He's in a garden. <laughs> Adam is expelled from a garden and brings death. Jesus rises bringing new life in a garden. And he does it when? on the first day of the week. <laughs> Why is that? That is a signal that reality itself has been transformed. Where death ruled before, he just beat death. That's new creation. We live in a brand new reality because Jesus came as one of us. That alone, I, we could end now and that should be enough to make you be pretty doggone happy. And you'd probably be happy if I stopped right here. But on we go. <clears throat> so Jesus is born into a broken world, yet he rises in a garden, signaling new creation. And that is what we celebrate. So now, so recapitulation is one of the facets. Another metaphor you could use is you could think as we work through this, think of recapitulation as the feet. That's the foundation. Jesus has to be one of us. He has to undo what Adam does, and he does it in a unique and powerful way. But the result of the atonement is new creation and new humanity. That's us. We're the new humans. So Adam 
loses access to the tree of life, <laughs> yet Jesus secures our access to eternal life. And if you, not to give any spoilers, if you haven't read the book of Revelation, but that tree of life does join us once again. <laughs> he makes that transition possible. That's what I love about the scriptures. They hold together quite nicely. The story has no ragged ends or no untold portions. Okay, so there we have recapitulation. Second Adam, Jesus lives as one of us, rises in the garden instead of being kicked out of the garden. Now I don't have to worry about the angels over there because I'd never get there on my own, but Jesus does it for me. So the second one, and this is sort of, think of this then as the heart. If recapitulation is the feet, then penal substitution is the heart. Now in some contemporary churches, progressive ones I would call them, they actually don't like this theory. <laughs> but if you don't like this theory, then you're missing the heart of what Jesus has done for us. So it's the penal substitution theory. Um, it was, I suppose in its current form, it was kind of developed by the reformers. Um, if you're familiar with Luther and Calvin and Zwingli and Melanchthon and those guys in 16th century Europe. But you'll find it in the early church fathers, the notion of Jesus as a substitutionary sacrifice. So substitution is simple. If you're, if you're a baseball fan, for example, if you get a pinch run, you know, you get a hit, but you're slow as molasses and they want you to steal second base. They put in a speedy guy and he's your substitute. He takes your place. Um, he doesn't represent you. He simply substitutes for you. And so, First and foremost, we need to understand that for, as this second Adam, as the one who lives perfectly, he's my ideal substitution. So when we look at Paul, when he talks in 2 Corinthians 5, and this is uh, this passage from now, and we'll read the rest of it in a little bit. It's one of my favorite concepts in all of Scripture. It says, For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, because we saw that all sinned. So therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who might live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. So Jesus patterns as our substitute, because he's done this for us, it's kind of the way we approach life, that his life and death provide a model. And we'll kind of unpack that a little bit more. So here, Paul is simply saying, the one we want to take from this is that the one has died for all. That's the essential part from here. So in this place, Christ is representing us as the ideal human, the second Adam. He incorporates us into his body by doing this, but he's also the substitute for us. He takes our place on the cross, which most of us understand. We understand that there's no way that I could be a good enough sacrifice to redeem myself, to turn away his wrath and anger. But now, because I see who he is, now I fully appreciate this substitutionary part of the sacrifice. Some people have a little trouble with the, what is called the penal part of penal substitution. Penal simply means it's a penalty. There's a penalty involved in this. Some people think this is terrible that God would send his son, and I've heard it referred to as, you know, cosmic, you know, child cruelty, as though somehow God sent his son to do something he did not desire. Well, 
It simply means they do not understand. But first, we need to figure out what it means by a penalty for the legal bunch among you. That, we all know that's familiar. It's simply a judicial decision which can result in suffering to person's right or themselves or to property. It's just a penalty. You've done something wrong. There's a consequence for that. Obviously, when we're with kids, we try and make them understand the concept of consequences with their choices. So the penal substitution comes from what, and there's, again, there's many theories of justice, but the one we want to think about here is retributive justice. It's just the idea that the punishment basically fits the crime, okay? So people say, well, you know, God never acts in terms of retributive justice. Well, actually, that's the best form of justice there is, particularly in light of the fact that we're fashioned in his image. That means he honors us and he treats us accordingly. He doesn't give us a free pass. I mean, you might give your dog a free pass, but you don't give humans because they're made in his image. So it's actually, justice is one of the ways that God's, God will honor us. So if we turn way back to Genesis 3, 14 and 15, and this is as Adam and Eve have been driven out of the garden, and here's the perfect example of what we mean by God's justice. So now he's talking to Adam. It says, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have done what? You have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat of the tree. One command, perfect setting. He breaks the command and eats. So now how does God respond to his eating? Cursed is the ground, that's important. He never curses, God does not curse humanity. He curses the ground. They'd been in the garden, what did you do? Oh, look, figs, pomegranates, bananas. You just picked the food you wanted. <laughs> How easy is that? But now what happens? In pain you shall what? Eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles, it, the ground, shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the food, how? By the sweat of your face, and you shall eat the bread till you return to the ground. The crime was in the eating. The punishment is in the eating. Every time you ate, you remembered what you did. Where it was ideal, harmonious, and simple, now it's complicated. It's difficult. And this doesn't really resonate for a 21st century Western audience. I don't think any of you in here are farmers. <laughs> you don't rely on the wind and the weather to provide your food. Well, until about 100 years ago, everyone on the planet, <laughs> this had far greater impact on them. But this is an image of God's retributive justice. He does not punish you greater than you deserve. He does not punish you less than you deserve. The worst thing you can ever expect from God is justice. He will give you what you deserve if that's what you desire. <laughs> Personally, I do not want his justice. <laughs> I'm perfectly painfully aware of what his justice would imply for me. So, what you see is, the, is that Adam, when he does this, not only does he lose access to life because he ate, but he lost the beauty and goodness of the garden. And then Jesus, by becoming and bearing the penalty for sin, and that's why he has to die for all, 
Jesus, in the moment on the cross, lost the beauty, goodness, and protection of the relationship with the triune Godhead. Adam is booted out of the garden and loses everything that he valued. Jesus, in that moment on the cross, that moment of dereliction when he cries, Father, you know, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In that moment, he bears the penalty of all of our sin and that separation. And he's known the love of the Father and the Spirit from eternity, perfect, blissful, ideal love. So the penalty that he bears is not in just in the physical suffering of being beaten and crucified, which is horrific enough in itself, but he loses the beauty that none of us can even begin to imagine. Whew. That one gets me. <laughs> but we see in that, and the beauty of this, is what Paul gives us in Philippians chapter 2, and, and it's the passage we're all familiar with, that remember God, Jesus as God, in eternity dwelling with the triune Godhead, he lays aside all of that in order to come to us, and through humility becomes one of us in order that we can be restored to get this. This is part of what penal substitution tells me, is that he's perfectly aware of the penalty that I have brought on myself. And he is willing to say that I'm willing to bear that for you and for the world. So again, it's really hard for us to envision the magnitude of what he bears when he does that. And yet he chooses to do that. So the recapitulation. The incarnation is absolutely essential because he has to be fully human, but the Godhead part of him is part of what bears that penalty. He bears it not simply in his flesh, but in who he is at the core of his being. And then people always ask, well, why is it necessary for blood? I remember years ago where you know one of my favorite hymns is you know nothing but the blood, and people go, why does it take blood? Well, all right, let's go back to good old Leviticus. Now I call Leviticus the train wreck chapter because people have the best of intentions. I'm gonna read the Bible straight through, make it through Genesis, cool, Exodus, kind of cool story. Leviticus, train wreck, goes right off into the bushes. They give up completely. But in Leviticus 17.11, we're actually given the reason for why sacrifice is essential. So Leviticus 17.11, for the life of the flesh is in what? It's in the blood and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement, here's the Hebrew, kafar, the atonement, for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement, kafar, by the life. The simple lesson, every time you sin, you forfeit a life. Technically, you forfeit your own life. Sin just costs a life, and therefore the entire sacrificial system, the reason that people would slay animals is it's a cost. The animal was the substitute then. Christ is the perfect substitute here and now. And then the author of Hebrews, he builds on this passage from Leviticus. He goes, indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. I'm pretty sure most of us need 
that. <laughs> I know that I do. Probably needed it already today. So, Jesus becomes the willing and voluntary sacrifice as the second Adam to be the perfect sacrifice, willing not only in his humanity to undergo pain and suffering, but in his divinity to take on separation that sin requires. So there you have the two, recapitulation, defeat, penal substitution, kind of the heart of it. So the head becomes what we call, there's an ancient doctrine that was really kind of popular in the early church, and it was kind of brought up by the guy by the name of Gustav Aulen, probably not on your reading list, but that's okay. Um, Christus Victor is the idea that Jesus defeats the, the powers of evil, of sin, of death, of the devil, that Christ is victorious. So one of my... One of my favorite scenes, I think, that depicts this as well as anything. Most of you have either read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe or seen the movie. So you remember the, Pe the four Pevensey children discover the land of Narnia. I, my daughter bought a cabinet at, still at our house. We swear it's the Narnia cabinet. It's this gigantic wooden thing that I'm pretty sure Narnia exists in. And the Pevensey children go through there, and they discover that in Narnia, it's always winter and never Christmas. And in Narnia, during this winter, the white witch holds sway. She's obviously Lewis's picture of the devil, of Satan, that the world is constantly in snow. There's no hope. It's dark. But we begin to hear about this character, Aslan, who is the Christ figure, and he portrays him quite rightly as the Lion of Judah. So at one point, Edmund, one of the children, betrays them and as a result he has broken the law well the witch claims that under the laws of justice under the laws of Narnia his life is forfeit so the witch is going to kill Edmund well naturally Aslan steps in and you know it's and Lewis called for a kid's story he colorful colors it beautifully in that you know they they humiliate Aslan eventually kill him and it's on this massive stone table. Well, even though Aslan is lying there dead in the middle of the night while the children are sobbing horribly, they think all is lost, they hear this enormous crack and the table is broken in half. It's absolutely shattered. And Lewis describes it like this. It says, though the witch knew the deep magic, there is a magic deeper still which she did not know. Her knowledge goes back only to the dawn of time. But if she could have looked a little farther back into the stillness and darkness before time dawned, she would have read there is a different incantation. She would have known that when a willing victim had committed no treachery, was killed. In a traitor's stead, the table would crack and death itself would start working backwards. Now that to me is a beautiful picture of a substitutionary atonement and of Christus Victor altogether, because at this point the resurrected Aslan goes after the white witch. Needless to say, he takes her out without much effort. So what Lewis does is in that he offers a beautiful picture of two things, of both the substitutionary atonement and the penal, because Aslan bore Edmund's crime of treachery. 
Now, part of what we recognize in that is that the presence of sin and evil and death is that we recognize that if we read the passage just before the one we read about Adam, is many people ask, why is there conflict? Well, again, we turn back to Genesis 3, 315, and this is known variously as, if you like the big theological terms, it's the proto-Euangelion. It's the first hint of the good news. So God here now, after the exile, is speaking to the serpent who had had the conversation with Eve, while Adam just apparently stood by, not doing much of anything. Doesn't bode well for the guy. So God tells the serpent, I will put enmity, I will put um, hatred, conflict, between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, or it can be also read your seed and her seed, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. But putting enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent is simply foretelling the reality that life on our planet will be beset by conflict until the end of time. There's always going to be conflict between the powers of evil and the image of God. It's just the way it's going to be. You don't need to be a good history student to know how many wars have been fought <laughs> on a planet, how much human misery is brought by other humans. And so the conflict was always going to be there. But John has, a, in two passages in particular, and there's many of these, in, in 1 John 3, 8, John says it's simple as can be. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. That's fundamentally it. Had to put them down. You remember when Jesus is walking around, are the demons perfectly aware of who he is? <laughs> they, they know him instantly. And my sense is, this is just a, here's a quick, this is a short bunny trail with a fun idea. Remember when Jesus is on the Mount of Transfiguration and they see him kind of looking pretty wild? My guess is that's how the demons saw Jesus all the time. I think they were painfully aware. <laughs> we couldn't see that, but they're spiritual beings. And they saw and they went, uh-oh. <laughs> I don't know if they were aware that he was, but there was a lot of activity then. I think the, uh, the infernal prince himself was throwing everything he had right at Jesus because he knew the end was nigh. And Paul, then in Colossians, and I love Colossians because it's, in Ephesians, Jesus is Lord of the church, but in Colossians, Jesus is Lord of the cosmos. And in two, Colossians 2.15, what does Jesus do? He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing, by triumphing over them in him. So that's pretty good when you put your enemies to open shame. And how does Jesus put them to open shame? Did he call down 10,000 legions of angels to kick their collective infernal hineys? No. Could he have done that? Yeah, he could have done that. He defeats them by humility and by offering himself as a willing sacrifice. That's an amazing victory. You know what I mean? When he shows up, they're not the kind of king he expects. He wins a kind of victory no one expects. I love the way God works things out. We think we have such great ideas, and I'm sure he chuckles. I think the cosmic background radiation is just God chuckling at humanity. He just kind of laughs at how we think we'll fix things. 
So that victory through humility and willing sacrifice, and this was, this idea of Christus Victor, of him defeating, you know, the powers of evil, was really big in the early church. It was, uh, Augustine was one of the many fathers who was just impressed that God defeats him, not through a show of force, but through this perfect act of justice blended with mercy. Jesus takes all the penalties of every human anywhere on the planet at whatever time, so justice is served, and yet in so doing, he can show mercy to us. That is a rather brilliant cosmic judge who's able to pull that off. All right, so we've seen recapitulation, second Adam, penal substitution. He is, handles the retributive justice, the consequence perfectly. He's Christus Victor because he absolutely defeats all of his foes and does it through humility and by being a willing sacrifice. And the final one, this can sound a bit confusing, but you need to walk with me all the way through it. So there's a guy, um, in a, one of another medieval guy in the 12th century, a guy named Peter Abelard. And he develops what's known as the moral influence theory. Now, Abelard, when he looks at all that Christ has done, he understands he's a substitutionary sacrifice. He knows that Christ has been victorious, but he kind of comes with this idea that through the life and teaching of Jesus, that Jesus, in effect, kind of kindles this redeeming love in us. Now, I think most of us would concur heartily that love, at its best when it's working, is transformative. That's how we work with our kids. We just, we, we know in a short time we ain't going to fix them. But we know that we can pour love into them. And that, that may be a little different than what they've received along the path. So we know that love itself is transformative, but they need to find the ground for it. So what I've told you so far in terms of the three theories, these are objective. These are realities. Jesus was fully human and fully God. He was the ideal substitutionary sacrifice. And he did, in fact, defeat them. Sometimes with moral influence theory, people think it's just this subjective feeling. So let me see if I can give you an example of what that might mean. So someone's out on the lake, they've gone out too far, and they're drowning. Someone jumps in, swims out to them, rescues them, but unfortunately in the process, the rescuer dies. Well, we would recognize that as a story of redeeming love, right? Someone sacrificed to save the life of another. Because they were motivated by love. Okay, same picture, someone's out in the lake, they're drowning. Now someone runs and jumps in the lake and just drowns themselves because they love them. Okay, that's hardly redeeming love. That's barely comprehensible. That's just goofy. So if I thought that Jesus alone in the example of his love would kindle redeeming love enough to restore me with God, I think I will have missed the point. <laughs> I will have missed, because that would be a subjective theory. That's all about me. That's just not it. So the question is, what actually does God do in this? So now I want to read the next part from the passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And there was a great early church father who, um, uh, you may have heard of the early church councils. Uh, there's a guy named Athanasius. He's an Egyptian, and he's this wonderful, just brilliant Christian thinker. And he calls this passage the Great Exchange. He says, all this is from God, who through Christ did what? Reconciled us. So here's at one moment. 
This is the word reconciled. He has restored us, what? So Christ reconciled us to him and gave us, what? The ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. In other words, it's God who restores. I don't restore myself by my redeeming love to God. He restores me to him. And he does this by not counting their trespasses, their sins, their infraction against them. Okay, so there's the mercy in place of justice. And entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Now, I am tasked to go out and bring restoration. Therefore, we are what? We are ambassadors for Christ. God, making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. For our sake he made in this part is what baffles me to this day. For our sake, he made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. When you appreciate that with everything else in this jewel or this, now we've seen it go from feet to heart to head, the moral influence is the hands if in fact we are now called, if we've been reconciled to God, I've been reconciled within the family of God, and now it's my task to go out and do the very same thing, how do I do that? Because I recognize that first Jesus took death and replaced it to new life and a new creation. His willing self-sacrifice takes me from being self-centered to being other-oriented. I have to be focused on the needs of others because that's what God has done for me. And finally, in this last part, all the unrighteousness that I bathe myself in can be transformed not into just righteousness, but into the very righteousness of God. And of the two, I prefer his to mine. It's much, much better. Or as we say in the, within the streets, it's more better. So what's interesting in this is in the, in the history of the early church, they really took this message and the fact that they had new life to heart. So when the early church begins in the first century, first three centuries until Constantine comes and makes it legal, um, Christianity is initially thought to be just an offshoot of Judaism, but it eventually becomes an illegal religion because they refused to worship multiple gods. They thought they were cannibals because they ate the flesh and blood. <laughs> They thought they engaged in sexual license because they called each other brothers and sisters. But in fact, what happens in the early church as ambassadors of reconciliation is remember in the ancient world, you had things like famines and crime, and it was just a horrific culture. If you read the 12 tables of Rome, infanticide was mandatory. <laughs> if you had a child that was less than perfect, you were compelled by law to kill that child. Rome was not a lovely, warm place. You watch the movies, Hollywood never gets it right. Just trust me. Find a good history book, never watch a Hollywood movie and think they have anything right. So there's also a world of famine. And it's a world of plagues. And what does the church do in the early days? When a plague hits, typically they had no idea what's going on. Everyone ran away from the cities. What did the Christians do? They stayed behind. Not only did they care for their own, but they cared for their neighbors. And in doing so, many of them died in the process. But when the people returned, do you think that had an impact on them? 
Yeah, it did. So after Christian, so and they do this for hundreds of years. They rescue babies um, that have been um, exposed on garbage heaps. They help people out. They begin to care for their poor. So just real, my final history note here is, so Constantine becomes an emperor and he becomes Christian and, and there's not as great a persecution any longer. But following him, there's a guy came, called Julian the Apostate and he wants to go to the old gods of Rome. And at one point he writes a letter. So at this point, Rome actually tried to care for their poor. And um, the problem is the Christians were doing a much better job than they were. So he writes a letter to the priests of all the temples saying, you had better start doing a better job than those darned Galileans, because that's how they referred to them, because not only do they care for their own, they care for our people as well. So here's the emperor taking note of how the Christians are so good functioning within their community. They were alive, they were well, they were with no political power. They took these things, understood, and that's why we call the moral influence the hands. They're the things that when you understand the foundation of who Jesus is, what he has done, they make you get up and move and do things. And then if you think about it a little further, there's Emperor Theodosius about 100 years later. By that point, the Colosseum games are gone. Slavery is put to an end. Um, the legal rights of women and children are protected. Jesus begins to affect the very world he came to save, and he does it through us. So some days you think you've got no political power? Who cares? <laughs> you don't think you have social power? You do. You got the, uh, you got the king of the cosmos. All right. So we started with William Tyndall's atonement at one moment. So when you look at these from recapitulation on through, you realize that the whole, so the how is everything Jesus did for us. That's how the death of one man on a cross affects us here and now. He became completely one of us, willingly and voluntarily goes to his death. So both justice and mercy can come from the king of the cosmos. He defeats all the powers of evil, so we don't need to be afraid of them. He's defeated death. He's put us into a new creation, called us his ambassadors as a kingdom here and now in which we can influence the world around us. So again, just think of the image of Jesus rising from the dead in a garden on the first day of the week, because that's where we live now. He has radically transformed the world and that gives us the living hope that we have. So we have a final song. This one's kind of rousing. It may wake you up, <laughs> but I like it. It's from one of my favorite goofy groups. You should enjoy it. At the end of that, we'll close in prayer, and then we'll go back and pray some more.